Good morning to you. Uh, welcome. Great to see you all this morning in worship. Great to be with you if you are uh, watching this morning online. A um, couple of announcements before we uh, get into the sermon. Actually, we're going to be um, studying Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Mark chapter 12 or pull it up on your phone or your iPad or uh, wherever you got it if you want to follow along. A couple of things. One is if you haven't been uh, to worship in a while at Christ the King, we will do communion after the sermon. And we're going to use these individually um, wrapped uh, communion elements that are in the narthex to my right and to your left. So if you haven't picked these up on the way in, uh, you're welcome to do that while I'm preaching. Uh, I know, you know, if you walk out, nobody's going to look at you mean or anything. I might call you out. I might call your name, but nothing else, nothing else. No, I'm just kidding. But these are uh, in the back, in the narthex. Second, uh, this morning, it's uh, a really um, wonderful celebration that we have going on in our presbytery, and that is that Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, which was the church that was launched by Blake Arnold uh, several years ago, a couple of years ago, is particularizing this morning, uh, meaning they are becoming a um, full-fledged church with elders and all kinds of things, uh, which really means that Blake doesn't just get to do what he wants to all the time anymore. You know, it's a little bit of a bummer. But no, it's really exciting because they're particularizing uh, some of the elders that are uh, becoming uh, their leadership uh, were formed and came out of Christ the King. And so it's a really great celebration for our city uh, and for them and for our church. So I want to start this morning by uh, praying for them and for us, and then I'll read the scriptures and we'll look into Mark 12. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do give you thanks even as we uh, this morning go to a passage in your scriptures that speak of you, Lord Christ, being the cornerstone of your church. We give you great thanks uh, for what you are doing at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. Thank you for Blake and Ryan Arnold, for their family, uh, for those who have come from this church and other churches and other places uh, to form leadership for them. We do pray, Lord Jesus, your great blessing upon them and as they particularize and as they uh, ordain and install elders in their church, Father, bless them, lead them, and use them to be a great and glorious light of the gospel in this city. And Father, as we now turn our attention to your word, we pray that we would do it uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts to hear what you would have us to hear, and that you would form us in the way that you would form us, by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Mark chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 1, I'll read until verse 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit, a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get them from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. 
Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, actually it's uh, uh, it's been several weeks ago now. Shannon and I were on a long road trip in the car, and we were listening to a couple of sermons and some other things. And one of the sermons I listened to, my daughter Emma had sent to me. It was preached by a friend of mine whose name is Russ Whitfield. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C. He was preaching at uh, the summer RUF meetings at the University of Texas, which John Trapp, the campus minister there, was doing online. And so we had different people from around different places uh, preaching for those um, those meetings, and he began with something in a sermon that made me just laugh. I laughed for about five minutes because I had exactly the same experience, and involves an Apple Watch. I don't wear this Apple Watch very much, and you're going to find out why when I tell you this story. Uh, I got this Apple Watch a couple of years ago for Christmas, and I charged it up, and I put it on my wrist. I didn't really know what to expect. But, you know, one of the things that I was doing around Christmas was I was just kind of watching college football bowl games, you know, like all day. You know, I'd put a dent in my couch from watching college football. And somewhere, you know, in the middle of the second or third game that I was watching, this thing on my arm began to buzz. And I looked down at it and it said, pay attention to your activity rings. And I thought, what's an activity ring? And so I kind of looked it up. And, and basically what this watch will do is this watch will tell you how much you've exercised for the day, how many steps you've taken for the day, and how long you have stood for the day. And the Apple Watch is set to a default of 10,000 steps. And I had probably about, you know, 150, you know, from the couch to the refrigerator to the bathroom on that day. And it was warning me that I was in dire danger you know, of, of my, my activity rings being way, way off. And so boldly, and without any politeness whatsoever, my watch on my wrist just buzzed. Pay attention to your rings. Attend to your rings, you know. Uh, my watch is telling me, in other words, that I'm being a lazy bum. Well, this started to get annoying to me, and I'll tell you why. Because even on the days that I wasn't watching college football, it's hard to take 10,000 steps in, in this city, you know? It's hot here. And I'll tell you another thing. Cars don't stop for you in, in Houston. Pedestrians do not get the right-of-way in, in the city of Houston. It's dangerous to walk here. And so this standard of 10,000 steps that I was supposed to get day by day, at some point during the day, this watch was buzzing on my arm. It was saying, you're not there. You didn't meet the standard. You're going to die, you know, essentially. But then I figured something out. And I'm super technologically challenged, but I did figure this out. It is possible to actually change the standard 
That's the beauty of the Apple Watch. I thought that 10,000 steps was like, you know, it was like a voice from heaven, you know, saying, you know, it is 10,000 steps and that is it. But you can change how many steps that you take during the day to meet your own standard. So I set it down to 6,000. Nope, couldn't get there. Didn't make it at six. I set it down to 2,000 steps. And then one day, one day something happened. My watch buzzed. And I was like, oh, goodness. It's going to tell me again that I failed. And I looked down on it. And this circular ring that was beautiful just closed itself in a loop. You did it, it said. You did it. And I was like, this is fantastic. So what you're telling me is that I can go in and I can set the standard to whatever it is that I can meet, and then it will tell me how good I'm doing? Why isn't the rest of my life like this? You know? This is actually a great temptation in our lives, is it not? For particularly for one who begins to attend to the Lord and begins to take God seriously. Because when you first meet God's standard, it's pretty daunting, Right? It's, it, you, you look at his standard and his standard of holiness and, and you're like, I, I cannot meet that. And so the temptation is to begin to revise that standard. What theologians from a long time ago started to talk about making God's law a manageable burden, right? Because, you know, you'd read things in, in, in the Bible and, and, and you'd start to think to yourself, surely God didn't really mean that I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. I mean... That's hyperbole, right? I'm really not supposed to do that. Maybe if I just tried to be a, a better friend to my friends, that'd be good enough, right? And in doing those kinds of things, something really important happens in our lives. And it is this. We subtly start to shift from measuring ourselves against the standard of a holy and righteous God. And we begin to shape God into a standard that is less than he is so that he will affirm us, so that we will meet that standard. One who believes the same things that we believe. One who loves the same people that we love. One who hates the same people that we hate. And one who generally serves our purposes. But this is a dire and potentially tragic and fatal mistake. And that is something that we learn here in Mark chapter 12. Now Mark chapter 12 begins with these words. And he, that's Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. You have to ask yourself, who is the them? Because that's important. We meet the them of verse 1 in Mark 12 in chapter 11. Remember, Jesus is now in Jerusalem. So the them are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Uh, officially, this constitutes what is known as the Sanhedrin, the leaders of religion in Jerusalem, the most important city in Israel. The priests, who are what the name says they are, the, they are the highest ranking priests in all of Israel because they are in Jerusalem. The scribes, who are experts in the Bible, they spend their days copying manuscripts of the Bible, studying the Bible, memorizing the Bible, the Old Testament, they know it backward and forward. The elders are the teachers of the Bible. In other words, this is the cream of the crop, this is the leadership of Judaism 
in the most important city of Israel, in Jerusalem, and they're after Jesus. They're after him. They sense his danger, and they are trying to destroy him. And they're trying to trap him in his words. And they're doing this two ways. They're either trying to get him to say something blasphemous, something that is against God, so that they can turn the people against him and they can show that he is a heretic and not worthy of being listened to and then be cast out. Or they're trying to get him to say something treacherous that would sound to the Roman occupiers of Jerusalem something that sounded like it was um, uh, inciting an insurrection or revolution against the Roman authorities. We'll see that next week when they try to get him on this whole question of paying taxes to Caesar. But Jesus isn't having this at all. And he interacts with these leaders on the basis of their misunderstanding and their misapplication of the standards of God. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders believe they see everything clearly. They believe they understand the standard. But Jesus is showing them in this parable that they misunderstand everything. And the misunderstanding everything is going to have tragic consequences for them as it did for their forebears before them. Now, this is the longest and most detailed parable that Jesus tells in the entire Gospel of Mark. Um, early in, earlier in the Gospels, he told his disciples that one of the reasons that he spoke in parables was so that the people that had ears to hear could understand it, but the people that didn't have ears to hear wouldn't understand it. But this parable is different. He is basically telling this parable to that small group of people, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. They know he's talking about them. That's what we see here at the end. They know that he's talking about them. And so we have to understand what he is saying. Now this parable, like any other parable, is highly allegorical. That means that these characters are fictional, but they stand for things that are real. They represent other true-to-life characters and locations. And this parable begins, where everything begins, with God. God is the owner of the vineyard. God owns the vineyard. He plants this vineyard and he owns it. And the vineyard that God planted, what that represents, is Israel. The chosen seed of Abraham that he selected out of all of the nations of the world to represent him, to shine the light of truth, and to serve as a mission, a light to all of the nations that surrounded them. Israel was governed by the law of God. And you could understand the law of God as the fence that the owner of the vineyard erected around that vineyard. Now, it's worth pausing at this point to understand that in, in, in Jesus' use of the terminology of a vineyard relating to Israel was not original. He didn't just make this up. And that's why these religious leaders knew what he was talking about. Because this allegory, this metaphor of Israel as a vineyard pops up a lot in the Old Testament. It's in the Psalms. It's in a lot of the prophets. One of the most important places is in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, that says this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard planted on a very fertile hill. Isaiah goes on later on in that chapter to expressly say that that vineyard is the nation of Israel. But this vineyard, which was supposed to bear sweet grapes for fine wine, instead bore wild grapes 
instead of the grapes that it was supposed to bear. But here the focus is on the people cultivating that vineyard, not just the vineyard itself, the people of Israel, but more particularly the leaders of the people of Israel, the kings, the priests of the Old Testament, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of that current day, they were rebellious. They decided to go their own way, ignoring, beating, even killing the messengers that God kept sending to them, begging them to repent and to turn back to him. Those are the prophets, those messengers of the owner of the vineyard. Those are the prophets that kept coming to Israel and saying, repent, turn back, God will receive you. Stop worshiping false gods, put away and destroy your idols. Show justice and mercy to the oppressed and the poor and the widow. But do you know what the people of Israel did? They ignored them. They beat them. They even killed them. Up to the last of those prophets that we've already read about in the Gospel of Mark, which was John the Baptist. So the, 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 the owner of the vineyard has but one more to send. He's out of messengers. He has but one more to send. His son. Not only his son, his beloved son, which uh, harkens back to what God has already said about Jesus in Mark, in, uh, in his baptism and at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And surely the landowner says, they'll recognize my son. He looks just like me. He has all my same mannerisms, all my same characteristics. They'll respect him. They'll listen to him. But no. Sensing an opportunity, sensing an opportunity to be rid of that manager of their lives, to be their own gods, to get the inheritance of the vineyard for themselves. They kill the son, they throw him out of the vineyard. So what is the owner of the vineyard going to do with those tenants? Well, Jesus says he will destroy the tenants, but he's not going to just take the vineyard back. He's not going to burn the vineyard down. He's not going to destroy the vineyard. What he says is, is that he will give it to others who will tend it, and they will bear fruit. So what Jesus is saying is this. Jesus is reminding the leaders in the city of Jerusalem that he has come to preach good news of the kingdom to the people of Israel. But they are and will reject him. In fact, just like the tenants of that vineyard in the parable, they're going to kill him. Jesus is the stone that the builders actually rejected. But by virtue of his resurrection, he is going to become the cornerstone of the house of Israel. Jesus is going to fulfill the mission of Israel. And the kingdom that came first to Israel is going to be turned over to the Gentiles, non-Jews, up to and including people that the Apostle Paul would say are a lot like us. In fact, they are us, who are engrafted into this vine of being God's people even though we are not originally a part of that vine of God's people. The true people of God, in other words, are all who receive and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. Whoever builds the house of their life on the cornerstone of Christ is his people. 
Jew or Gentile. There is no difference for all are one in Christ. So what are we? Or who are you if you're a follower of Jesus? Well, we're replacement tenants in the land that God has given to us to represent him, to speak the truth, to shine the light of the gospel to all who surround us. What are we supposed to make of this? Because we could just stop there and say, cool, we're the replacements. That's awesome. We live in the vineyard. Sweet. But Jesus is offering a warning to us just like he was to those he was speaking to in that parable because there were two reasons why those tenants were ultimately rejected. And if we don't pay attention, we can fall into the same trap over time that they fell into. And those two reasons were these, a failure to listen and a rejection of the Son. A failure to listen and rejection of the Son. The first factor that leads to God departing from you is a failure to listen. God sent the prophets over and over and over again to Israel. And we have all of those words contained for us in the scriptures of both the Old and the New Testaments. And in God's grace, he has continued to raise up, the scriptures tell us, missionaries and evangelists and pastors and teachers to proclaim his words. He's not left us in the dark. But will we listen? That's the question. Will we listen? Will we have ears to hear? There are two major ways to go through life, and I'm particularly talking now to those of you who profess faith in Christ. One is you walk through life as those who are formed by the Word of God. That You are formed and you live your life through the lens of the Scriptures. Now here's the thing about that. This is a painful thing. It is a painful thing to be formed by the Word of God. The Bible speaks of this actually in painful terms. He talks about being refined by fire which seems unpleasant. He talks about being cut by a sharp, double-edged sword. He talks about the role that believers have in each other's lives is sharpening one another, chiseling one another, cutting rough edges off of each other like iron sharpens iron. To be formed by the word of God essentially means that we are uncomfortable in the presence of God. I'm going to talk, I'm going to explain this later, but listen, to be uncomfortable in the presence of God because we are measuring ourselves honestly against his true standard of holiness all the time when we read the Bible. So we can't go to passages in the Bible and essentially walk away from them in total comfort. If we do, we have decreased that standard. If you go to a passage like the parable of the Good Samaritan and you don't walk away from that parable uncomfortable about who you actually believe your neighbors are, then you haven't actually measured yourself against the true standard of the Word of God and what it is that he has talked about. We're constantly living in that state of discomfort because we're never going to arrive at that standard. We're always being cut. We're always being refined by fire. We're always being chiseled. This is the way that God works sanctification in our lives. It's an act of his grace, a work of his grace. And that's why so few of us, I think, myself included, often, 
really give ourselves to formation by God's word. And so instead of using the word of God as the filter through which we see all of the rest of life, what it is tempting for us to do is take the most important things to us in our lives and put that in front of the scriptures and use that as the filter through which we read God's word. And so if the most important thing in your life are your political convictions, you'll read the word of God through those and you'll filter out anything that doesn't measure up to what you already believe. If the most important thing in your life are your economic convictions, you'll read the word of God through that filter and you'll filter out anything that doesn't meet it. If the most important thing in your life are, is your social standing or your social convictions, you'll read the word of God through that lens and you'll filter out anything that doesn't measure up to it. That is the problem And that is exactly what the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were doing in chapter 10. They were reading the word of God through a filter that they had devised. And that filter was filtering out the son of God who was standing right in front of them. They couldn't see Jesus for who he was. Because they were reading the scriptures through faulty glasses, through faulty lenses. Honestly, I think, I really think that if we were to boil it down... This may be the greatest challenge for a believer in the 21st century, in our country at least. Because we are constantly being formed. We're constantly being formed. There are things that are shaping us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, from the billboards that we see, you know, on 610 to waking up in the morning and Apple News being right on our phone to social media, you know, to everything, um, up to and including having our own pastors that we can find anywhere in the world that we want to be our teachers. You know, we we can all have our own pastors. I, I, I like to listen a lot to Tim Keller sermons, but as much as I would want to, if I were ever like in a crisis in my life or in the hospital and I text, I don't, I can't text him. I don't have a cell phone number. So that's another problem. He would not come visit me in the hospital. Tim Keller would, can you believe that he wouldn't come visit me in the, I'm actually, Actually, kind of makes me mad to think about that right now. But uh, you know, uh, it, it's it, what this is. What I'm saying is that we're just we can be formed by so many different things in so many different ways, and it's constantly happening to us that it is actually an act of the will. It really is an act of your will as a follower of Jesus to open your heart to being truly formed and shaped by the Scriptures. To have the scriptures being the primary mode of formation of your life. So that you begin to see all of the rest of the world through the lens of scripture and not vice versa. That's going to make your life challenging. Because it's going to make it hard for you to fit into the neat categories that our world wants to provide. That we can all kind of just slide into. Because the scriptures challenges like all of our categories, right? It challenges all of our tribes. It challenges everything. And it's going to make it a little bit hard to kind of interact in this world. But that's another reason why this kind of ragtag community of people that we're in right now called the church is so important. You know, the preachers and the teachers, whether they're ordained or they're lay people, are not going to hit home runs every single time they stand up to speak. In fact, it is possible that we might strike out, you know, every now and then. The church isn't just about that. It's about the community. 
It's about you being in the lives of one another, sharpening one another, encouraging one another, challenging one another, spurring one another on to love and mission. And that's why it's important that in a place like the community of the church, we're not all the same. We're not all the same. That's a tribe. The church is not a tribe. The church is a community, which is much broader than a tribe. Because we need each other, and we need our different perspectives, and we need our different, uh, we need we need our different, our cultural, we need all kinds of differences to sharpen one another and challenge one another and get us to question what it is that we believe and to, to spur us on to love and to good works. That's why God invented a broad, diverse community called the church. But that's the first factor: a failure to listen. The second factor is related to it. But it's the key thing that we miss and the key thing that we, fail, that we fail to listen to. And that is an ultimate rejection of the Son. Ultimate rejection of Jesus. This is the crux of this parable. It's actually the crux of the entire Bible. And Jesus quotes Psalm 118 to remind his original listeners that this was not new. That the Old Testament teaches us about Jesus just like the New Testament teaches us about Jesus. It's been the message of the prophets from the earliest days. The cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who was rejected, passed over, and cast away by his own people, has become the stone that if it is absent from the building of your life or the building of the church, your life or that community will crumble to the ground. But if it is present, it is the only thing that will actually allow it to stand. Only Jesus. And again, that raises a key question for us. What is the cornerstone of your life? What's the cornerstone of your life? Honest or earnest question. You can ask it this way. What, if absent or taken away from you, would you believe right now would cause the entire edifice of your life and your existence to crumble down to the ground. But on the other hand, if it's present, if it happens to be there, you believe everything is good, everything is right in your world. You know, it could be a relationship. It could be your vocation. It could be your social network in Houston or in your school or in your university. It could be your body, your beauty, or your athletic ability. It could be your bank account. It could be your freedom to live your life with no constraints. It could be an addiction that actually makes you miserable, but that in private you hold more dear to anything else in the world, something that is actually objectively the Lord of your life. We're in a season where those things right now are being either highlighted or challenged. This season that we're in, uh, in, in in our lives, you know, if if you struggle with addictions, those things are probably highlighted. There's probably a, a sharp, bright light shining on those things right now. But if, you're, if, if what you're really building your life on is your body or your health or your, uh, your financial stability or your job, those things are like could be in flux right now. Those things could be you know, in question right now. And what Jesus would convince us of 
And would really push us to is a conclusion that if we build a house of our lives on anything other than the solid rock of Jesus Christ, that when the waves come and the waters rise, and what, what is, the waves are blowing, the waters rising right now in our culture, in our lives, in our country, in our world, if we have built the house of our life on anything other than Christ, it will fall. It will crumble to the ground. It cannot stand right now is the perfect time to run to Jesus, to lay at his feet everything that you highly value and say, Jesus, I give these things to you. If I have them, fine. If I don't, I have you. And that is enough. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, no matter where it is that you have me. Because while a failure to listen and a failure to embrace the Son of God leads God to take that vineyard and to give it to somebody else. The opposite is also true. If you hear, if you turn, if you repent, if you run to Jesus and you live your life in that state of constant repentance that comes when you are accurately measuring your life against the standard of God's perfect holiness where you're refusing to manipulate God into a manageable burden, a manageable image, he'll not only receive you, he'll embrace you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He will sharpen you. He will sanctify you. He will make you useful in his kingdom to be one who's an ambassador of Christ in the world. And ultimately, you'll never truly be destroyed by the loss of what this world could never guarantee in the first place. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the cornerstone, that by your resurrection, you proved definitively the short-sightedness and the wrong-headedness of rejecting you because what looked to be weak was actually immeasurably strong. We pray, Father, that we would build our lives upon you, the only rock of our salvation, and that you would strengthen us to be your ambassadors in your world. In Jesus' name, amen.